Hey Church of the Beloved, my name is Kevin Zo and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Just wanted to say a quick thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. This week's message is brought to us by Pastor David Otua, who is a church planner in Chicago, partnering with COTV. He is preaching from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome. Uh, how are we doing? Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Christmas is upon us. I think I heard Mariah Carey like 10 times in the last 24 hours. So y'all know what that means. Advent season is here. Um, like Abe was, was sharing, I've been blessed actually. The last several months, I've been able to visit a lot of different uh, church traditions. Just trying to learn from our uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as we kind of process, me and a small group of us process what church could and perhaps should look like in, in Chicago. Um, so it's been cool. I've gone to an Eastern Orthodox Church, Catholic Mass, Anglican Church, uh, Lutheran Church. Uh, I've gone to Bedside Baptist, uh, Holy Comforter. Some of y'all know what I'm saying. Some of y'all don't get it quite yet. Um, but I've been able to visit a lot of, uh, of, of different uh, churches, but it's good to be home. I appreciate you guys. You guys have, a lot of you have supported me well. You've encouraged me. You've prayed for me. And so it's, it's, it's good to be back. I will say one thing that, that actually I have learned from a lot of these church traditions, especially the uh, liturgical ones, is they don't preach very long. Do y'all know this? They preach for like 25 minutes tops and they're done. And so I'm inspired. It's going to be hard. No guarantees. But my goal is to keep this under 30 minutes. What do we think? We think it's doable? It'll be my holiday gift to you guys. We'll start the timer now. Um, like Abe said, my name is David Otua. I, I haven't actually met yet a lot of you guys, which is funny for me. Uh, I was an associate pastor here for a minute or two, uh, and now I'm serving kind of as a missionary to Chicago, so you could say being supported uh, by the church. A fun fact about me is that I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My mom loves the Pentecostal church. In fact, once upon a time, Beloved was a Southern Baptist church, and I told her that, and she was distraught. She told me, um, Baptist people don't believe in the Holy Spirit. She was joking. She was joking. I think so, at least. Um, but, you know, in her defense, she was saved Right in a very charismatic church, she had a very um, supernatural conversion to faith. She says when she was in Nigeria, and so as you can imagine, right, this 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 formed her idea of who God was and how she should interact with Him. And so, in a similar way, as we were growing up, it formed how we saw God and how we thought we could or should interact with him. Does that make sense? Like, like, I wasn't taught that God was this being that just chilled up in heaven with like popcorn and watched things unfold and didn't intervene. Like, I was taught that God was here. You know what I'm saying? Like, God was present, present. You could speak with him. You could ask him questions. He would answer you. He would encourage you. He would spur you on, like that God was intimate, like a friend, not like a distant 
father. That, that, that was a theology that my mom taught me, and that's kind of the theology I think I still have today, and probably the theology that most of us have. But can I make a confession? It probably isn't the theology that I consistently live in my life. If I was honest with you, um, I more often live like God is a distant father who is disinterested in my life. Not like he doesn't care at all, but like he doesn't really intervene. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, if I was honest, I sometimes treat God, right, like as this being, right? Of course, he created the heavens and the earth, and he did all these amazing things on earth, right? But then it was almost like God was like, all right, you know, I'm kind of tired of being here on earth. Just like write all this stuff down and make it a book. You know what I'm saying? And had, here, I'll give you this book. I'm out, peace. I'm going back to heaven, right? And we almost, and I, and I live this way. It's, it's crazy. It's almost like I'm just waiting for heaven to see God again. And here on this earth, I'm just like, I guess I just kind of be nice to people, right? There's no expectation that God is a friend who weekly I can converse with and see. And so my confession to you is that I have this dissonance between the theology of my head and the theology of my life. And at times it's paralyzing and it's discouraging. And it makes me ask questions like, am I actually living this Christian life to the fullest? You know, like, should my expectations of God be higher? Should I be seeking him even more than I am? And I still need to, I think, personally kind of resolve this cognitive dissonance. If God, for some reason, is just like spectating our lives or if it's true, that God is a friend we can hear from. And so these are the kind of things I want to talk about in hopefully under 30 minutes really quickly in this passage that we have uh, together. I should be honest with you. If this relates to you, maybe you haven't really even thought about this before, but you're like, you know, I have some dissonance myself when I think about my Christian life. Um, My caveat is I probably won't resolve that for you in this sermon. To be honest, I might raise more questions than answers, but my hope is that at the very least, it makes us pause and reflect on this Christian walk. This must have been walking for a very, very long time. Just pause and reflect so that we don't get stuck on autopilot, but we contemplate Is there more to being a disciple of the Lord that we have experienced so far in our lives? The passage is a famous one. Most of us have heard it before, right? Jesus flipping tables and flipping people off. I'm just kidding. That's not in the Bible. Um, But a very passionate, angry Jesus, it seems like. And when I often hear this story preached or taught, they usually paint... Uh, the people who were selling stuff and uh, changing money in a very, very bad light, right? They paint them almost like they were um, ripping people off, 
right? Or they had like no reverence for God. They were scam artists. Usually I've heard it preached to justify why Jesus is so angry. You know the truth is though? When you kind of look up the tradition a little bit of what's going on, it actually seems a little bit more reasonable than we first think. I mean, it tells us, right, that it's the Passover feast. It's a big feast, one of the biggest ones in all of a Jewish culture. And so people from all over the world, like Jesus, are coming to Jerusalem. The thing is that for this feast, what you have to do is you have to sacrifice animals. That's what you did. And as you can imagine, most of the people traveling aren't going to be carrying a sheep, you know, with them. or They can't afford to bring all the animals they need for the sacrifices. So what they're simply doing is saying, if you come, we will provide the pre-approved animals for you. That's what, that's what the cattle, like it says in verse uh, 15, the oxen, the sheep, the do- that's what all that stuff was. It was the sacrifices they're providing for them. It talks about money changers. A fun fact is that if you were a young male, I think actually over the age of 20, I guess older male, in a Jewish culture, you had to pay tax annually at the temple. That's why they had money changers, was so people can pay their taxes, so people can offer their sacrifices. It seems much more reasonable, right, when you kind of, learn more about the tradition and what was going on. And so why was Jesus so frustrated and passionate? I would argue that it's less about the actions themselves. It's not like what they were doing was super egregious, but it was more about what those actions revealed about how they viewed God, about who they thought God was, and how they viewed the temple. The temple has a very fun, fun is an interesting word, uh, interesting maybe history is a better word. The first one, right, it was the idea of King David. God liked the idea, but he said, you're not going to do it. Your son will build it. So Solomon builds the temple in a lot of detail. A lot of detail. I don't know if y'all have read this passage in the Bible, whenever I read it, I feel like it gets longer and longer. Like, they're still adding chapters to it after they, like, it's a lot of detail. It shows you how extravagant and intentional the first temple building was. In fact, it was so extravagant, it got plundered a lot of times. First by the Egyptians, you could probably guess that. Second by the Assyrians before it was finally destroyed. I think it was 580 B.C. by, anybody know? Who destroyed the first temple? The Babylonians. King Nebuchadnezzar, that guy. So they destroy the first temple, and if you know the book of Ezra, they're like, we need to build another temple. And so they build a second temple, and the second temple is actually the one that Jesus is visiting in this passage. This temple is a lot less extravagant uh, than, than the first one. It's kind of an echo or a shadow of the first ones. A lot less details, a lot easier to read if you want to read that passage. And the second temple, in fact, was almost so stripped down compared to the first one, it was missing a very important thing. Does anyone know what the first temple had 
the second one did not have? Any guesses? No, no guesses? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was not in the second temple. That kind of seemed like a big deal, doesn't it? And it's funny, a lot of us, we, 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 don't, we don't know that when we read this passage. In fact, in the Bible, there's actually no passage that says that God's presence fills the second temple the way it does the first temple. If you read that passage, after Solomon completes it, it says like a cloud, God's presence comes into the first temple. There's no passage like that for the second temple. Now, I'm not saying that God was not there, that his presence was not there. We, we don't know that for sure. I can't say that with confidence. But it does make you think a little bit, right? Like there was something different. There was something changing as the history of the temple went on. Historians have no idea what happened to the Ark of the Covenant after the Babylonians destroyed the first temple, they don't know if the Babylonians took it. They don't know if the Israelites hid it. They have no idea what happens. I think the Bible last mentions it in Chronicles, and then we never see it ever again. Well, until, I guess, Indiana Jones finds it, I guess, like, whatever, 1980. But, right, we, we never see it again. David wants to make a temple because he says, I want a place where God's presence can make its home with us. The Ark of the Covenant was the very structure that represented the presence of God. When God created the heavens and the earth, literally from the moment he created it, he had this crazy idea. I imagine it's an idea he shared with the angels, and they were like, come again? It's probably an idea that they couldn't believe. An idea that maybe the demons heard, and they scoffed at, and they mocked it. An idea that we actually today still take for granted. God had this crazy idea that creator can be among creation. That the divine could make its home intimately with humanity. God did not owe us that. We sometimes act like, like it's like it means nothing to us, the scandal. God could have created this world like a domino, let it go, step back and watch it happen. But the Bible says that he so loved the world. He loved his creation after he made it. He said, I want to be a friend to them. I want a home with them. But by the time Jesus comes for the Passover festival, people seem to have forgotten what the temple was all about. The Ark of the Covenant is no longer there. They seem to no longer expect or desire to have an intimate meeting with the Lord. And so it says that Jesus is zealous 
over the house of God. Why? It's not simply because of what they were doing. It's because of what they're not doing, right? Like they're, they're not coming to this temple with expectation. They're not coming to this temple with joy. They're not coming with, with, with reverence, with fear, falling on their hands and knees, uh, you know, elbowing each other, being like, maybe today, maybe today we'll see God. They're not, they're not coming with that expectation. Maybe today we'll hear an answer to our prayers. Maybe today he will encourage us. Maybe today he will whisper something to us that spurs us on. They don't have that expectation. All they think is let me go make a sacrifice and pay my taxes. That is their faith life. And boy, do I resonate with that. I've been a Christian a long, long time. I joke I was baptized in my mom's womb. You know what I'm saying? Like my first words were in tongues, like that long. I had no choice. I was a Christian my whole life. And if I was honest with you, a lot of my Christian life has been nothing but me offering God sacrifices and taxes. I've almost never been in a church where I didn't serve a lot. <laughs> I wasn't constantly thinking, even outside of the church, how can I be the kind of Christian that God would be proud of? What, what are the things I need to do? that he would smile when he thinks of me. Sacrifices, taxes. It's only recently that it's been kind of burning me out. Right? When you're young, you have energy, you know. As you start to get old, you, gotta, you get tired easier. I began to think about my relationship with God and what I must think of him. That's my only expectation. That's all that I offer him. My mom, uh, this past Thanksgiving, was sharing a little problem she had at church. You know, my family, we don't argue about politics on the holidays. We argue about theology. That's what we argue about. We're nerds, you know. And so my mom's, you know, she's a wonderful woman. She's teaching uh, the kids' ministry at the Nigerian church she goes to. Um, she's about 20 kids. She's like, I'm trying to get them to read the Bible, <laughs> They don't really want to. I'm trying to get them to read it. She's like, I, she even offered them, it was like $100. She would pay the parents if they like read and memorized a scripture. I was like, what? You did not offer me any money to remember scripture? You're like, oh, spanky. Anyways, and that's what she does. And she's like, they, they won't read it. So we're, you know, talking about how to get them to read it. And her and my sister were going back and forth a little bit. And I finally asked my mom, I was like, okay, when did you start reading your Bible? And she thought about it, and she gave this uh, story about how even though she was saved in a supernatural way for a long time, she actually never read her Bible. Like, she would hear it read, but she never would read it herself. She said, finally, something happened where she was in a very uh, dark season. She was uh, discouraged and depressed, and she was praying to God, being like, God, I just want to know you more. I want to see you more in my life. She said she felt like she heard something not audibly, but she heard God say to her, if you want to know me more, then read the word. That's how you can know me more. And that's, she said, what gave her the lifelong motivation to read the Bible. It was so 
she could experience God. And I was telling her this. I said, more often than not, in my experience, Protestant evangelical church, we start and end with the Bible. This might be a little bit dicey. We'll see how this goes. We make it seem like this is God. Like this is an end in and of itself. As long as you read it, you're fine. You're good. You did your duty, you're fine. And we forget that this was supposed to be a tool to tell us about God and to help us reach and see God. And not just the Bible, all the spiritual disciplines, all the good works we do are not ends in and of themselves. There are means to see the Lord. And I don't know if beloved will agree with this, but I'm going to say this. If you are doing good things and you are not seeing God, you don't have an intimate relationship with the Lord, you might need to pause doing some good things. Can I be real? If you are serving and it's burning you out and it's distracting you and you do not see the Lord, you might need to pause serving. You might need to reevaluate. Because this place is not about sacrifices and taxes. It's about encountering your friend. Your Savior. I was talking to a friend about this dissonance I was feeling. It's a friend who shared with me before that she felt like she had some kind of sensitivity to the Spirit. So I was asking her about her experience, you know, and she was saying that, you know, it's just her personal experience, but she said for her that she feels like sometimes uh, God will give her a feeling. And it'll be a unique feeling. She'll know it's from God, but it will be all she needs to be encouraged. She said sometimes, maybe rarely, maybe a word or a phrase will come with that feeling. And it'll be a phrase that she won't say to herself. It'll be like, you know, I'm proud of you. And she says, I, I know then it's from God. And so I was asked, I was really pressing her on this idea and, and her experience. And I said, okay, do you like do certain things to have these intimate moments with God? And she said, I'm just open. She said, ironically, sometimes when I'm in religious spaces where they kind of give you like 20 minutes to like hear from God, it's like too pressurized, right? And it's like, it's like I just feel like I either make it up or it's like too much, you know, it's too intense. She said, instead my approach is I take a week. And during that week, I will sometimes go on a walk. And rather than listen to music, I will just be open to listen to God and see if he says something to me. He says, when I do the dishes, when I clean the house, I'm just open. I try to remove distractions from my life. I don't know if you guys have ever had those past experiences before. I don't know about your past, but I pray honestly that it's your future. I truly do pray that if you are like me with some dissonance, that it will end. The theology of your mind would match the theology of your lives. That we will be people who haven't simply heard about the Almighty God, but we'll be people who can say, I have also seen him with my own eyes. Paul tells us, 
in 1 Corinthians, you are the temple. You are the new temple. The first two temples were destroyed, and not everyone knows this, but the Bible actually tells us that God will rebuild a third temple. It's in the Word. And he says the third temple will be eternal. It will not be destroyed. It will not end. You are the third temple, Paul says, of the Holy Spirit. You are the completion of God's crazy plan to be an intimate friend to his creation. With you, in you, you can accomplish something that neither of the first two temples could. The Almighty will no longer have to be a distant father. He could be truly a close friend. Thank you for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit our website at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.